it's good to uh, to be back with you. Um, many people have asked if we had a good vacation. We did have a good vacation. It was it was a blessing. We got to uh, got to fish and gig frogs and and uh, enjoy Tennessee in all of its fullness in that way. Um, so it was good. But it's even better to be back with you. It's even better to be back worshiping God together. Uh, it is. If there's one thing about not being apart, like I said, through the crisis and all that we've been in, it's one thing about not being together is that we enjoy it so much more we can actually come back together uh, and be together and worship the Lord. So thank you. Um, thanks for welcoming us back. We're going to be in Psalm 77 today, and we are going to begin a series uh, on lament. Biblical lament is the word you may that, that word might be foreign to your ears. Uh, you may be familiar because you know the book of Lamentations. Uh, so there's going to be Psalm 77. There's going to be an excerpt, from, a couple other excerpts from the Old Testament uh, over the next two weeks. And then Pastor Matt will return and begin expositing the book of Lamentations. So looking forward to that, doing that together. Um, I've got a few, because this is the first sermon in the series of sermons on lamentation, we're going to try to cover a little bit of groundwork here, a little bit of background work about lamenting and lamentation before we actually jump into the text today. So, let's do that. To cry, to cry is uniquely human. Other animals may make sounds in order to show their displeasure in something, but only humans have this moment of physical manifestation of overwhelming emotions by distorting their face, or cringing their bodies, or tearing up of the eyes, of course, or the lump in the throat, or a wail of a voice, or sobbing with your diaphragm. This is an experience that is, again, uniquely human. And somewhat perplexing to the naturalist, the person who's just looking for the purpose of everything in the created rather than the creator. It doesn't actually survive or doesn't actually have any evident survival mechanism for human beings that this is why, this is how our emotions bubble over and crying or sobbing. No one has to teach you to cry. It's hardwired into us. The book, uh, the author of the book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Mark Brogoff is his name, and you're going to hear that title, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. It's the title of a book that has is going to be a, con a conversation partner for the preachers that are preaching through this series. Um, it's It deals with lamentations, it deals with lamenting and biblical lamenting, but he put it this way in his book, and by the way, you should, if you, uh, we have a few copies of that coming, if you're interested, it's going to be for sale at our Welcome Center, and then you can go online to our Facebook, our Facebook page, I posted on Thursday, a study guide that's going to accompany each one of the sermons that go along with the series, so you can get the fullest extent of the biblical exposition, so you might check that out. You're going to be hearing that be referenced throughout the next few weeks. And I would say, as a side note, this isn't in my manuscript, but I do want to say this morning, there is a, a certain degree, a, 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 we, you know, we were, had a uh, multiple month shutdown, and then we kind of got the economy back going again, and things opened back up, and now there is another degree of obviously a surging in cases, I would say. So there's anxiety um, that's swirling about once again. If we have to, uh, we're going to keep marching. We're going to keep, uh, if we have to go back into our homes again, we will be able to still hear the expositions from Facebook Live. We'll do what we have to do to continue teaching God's Word uh, through difficult times. Not unprecedented times. I've heard that a lot. It's not unprecedented. It's just difficult. Okay? Um, and so we will, we will be covering lamentations and biblical lamenting over the next few weeks. Um, it's natural to cry. He said it this way, it's natural because we live in a world that's broken, and tears and crying are how we enter the world, and tears and crying are how we exit the world. There's not a funeral that happens without some kind of tears, right? There will be tears. We live in a broken world. No one walks away from a funeral thinking all is well with the world. We're broken. Creation is broken. Being the only ones who bear the image of God means we're the only creatures in all of creation to actually be able to be overwhelmed by the brokenness and then need a mechanism by which to verbalize our distaste for our disunity with our Creator. So we cry. But we're not going to be preaching and talking and teaching about just plain old crying because 
So this plain old crying is different than lamenting in a biblical sense. I want to give you a few thoughts about lament before we dive into Psalm 77. You will find, like I said, some of these in the study guide that I mentioned earlier that's posted to our Facebook page. So grab that up, get your PDF. If you want a hard copy of it, just let us know. We'll make sure we print one out for you for your own personal study as well. A lament is a loud cry or howl or a passionate expression of grief, grief and this is key, directed towards the ears of God. Okay? A lament is a cry, a howl, or a passionate expression of grief directed toward the ears of God. While crying is natural because we're human beings, lamenting in a way that's biblical and right and helpful is not natural, per se. There's something about lament that initially makes us uncomfortable, even scared. For instance, the, the last time you were around somebody who was experiencing deep, deep grief, think of maybe an especially difficult funeral, where you heard the audible sounds of someone crying out to God, those moments become etched in our hearts and our minds and our souls. I'll never forget, I was at a, a conference called Together, called for, Together for the Gospel a few years back, and the concluding, the concluding sermon was challenging to people in this arena. We're in the, the KFC Yum Center, so it's a great big, vast arena, like 10,000 people in here, So and, and it's echoey, right? You go to an arena, and it's really echoey as well. And the, the, the closing speaker reminded us the imminent real risk of the lost going to hell. And he challenged us all to gather into small groups with the people that were right around us and get a person in our mind and pray for them. And you can imagine this is a relatively quiet exercise to start because it was kind of awkward. You know, this is a, this is we're all in these these like vast rows, and he's like, okay, everybody, just kind of gather together and start praying for this thing. So it was somewhat silent at first, and then there was a howl that went up and echoed through the arena. No words at first, just the sound of a man who, with every fiber of his body and soul, felt the brokenness of this world. He, then he said, I, I can't, it, it's seared in my soul, the how. He, was, he wailed. And then he said, my son, Lord, my son. And remember, we're praying for the lost. These were the pains of a father fearing hell for his son. It was a lament. And it sent chills down my spine. And it put an impression inside of me. And at first it made all the hairs on the back of our neck stand up. And it was awkward. That much pain directed towards God being openly displayed was uncomfortable. Because unfortunately in our cultural context it's rare. It's rare. To admit openly and directly squared at God that you are in pain interferes with our American pursuit of happiness. To admit the pain and express the pain is to consent to the fact that everything is not okay and that I am not okay. I would say that we in the 21st century American church haven't been very well versed in lamenting. But the Bible is quite well versed. A third to a half of the Psalms are Psalms of Lament. 150 Psalms. 50 plus of them are lamenting psalms. They are the largest category with several subcategories within the psalms. There are laments found both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, not just in the book of Lamentations. Much of what was fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ was predicted in the lament psalms. Psalm 69, verse 21, for instance, references the vinegar that Jesus would drink while he was on the cross. Psalm 69 is a lament psalm. Psalm 109, verse 25, predicts that a crowd would mock Jesus. Psalm 109 is a lament psalm. Psalm 22, verse 18, references the soldiers gambling for Jesus' clothing. And then verse 16 says, they pierced my hands and feet. Psalm 22 is a psalm of lamentation. These are all laments. Their prophecy that is rooted in lament. And then the greatest example, I think, of all is in the New Testament, 
what Jesus says on the cross. Remember his last words? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He quotes Psalm 22, which I just read from, which is a lament. It's a lamentation. So lament is much more prominent expression of one's faith than I think many of us realize. And it can be both personal or communal. It can mean I'm expressing my own grief, my own lament, or I'm, or I'm expressing what's going on in my own life. Or it can be expressed on behalf of the community. Or as in the case of Psalm 77, it can be as a person expressing grief as a representative of a community of people. Lament is used to address, excuse me, express not only individual anguish, but the book, as the book of Lamentations will show you when we get there, from Pastor Matt's portion of the series, it is a corporate expression of pain. And as I said before, I don't think we in 21st century America, evangelical church, know how to lament. I, I, I discovered in my study for this series, I'm not that good at lamenting. I don't know much about biblical lament. I needed to learn. It's not a category I had embraced, really. I, I, I found, and we all do, right? We all, we all go through pain, so we find coping mechanisms in order to deal with that pain and soldier on or just have a complete breakdown or whatever. And we pick up all these habits along the way for how to deal with the fact that things aren't right. They're not right. Sin has made them not right. And so we cope, we deal, and a lot of them, we don't even realize we're doing it. We don't even realize we picked up these habits. And so we as Christians, but this isn't how we, we don't just coast, we don't just drift. We look to the Bible for how to, how to do things, how to express ourselves, how to deal with our emotions and so forth. And for some reason, I don't know why, there's this giant hole in the middle of our, our Christian American psychological state, and that giant hole needs to be filled with lament. We need to embrace how the Bible deals with pain, and then we need to deal with pain the way the Bible deals with pain. Deal with suffering the way the Bible deals with suffering. Brothers and sisters, pain is inevitable, and we want you to be prepared you will most, you most likely will at some point in your life, if you haven't already, or you're not currently doing it, walk through an intense season of pain and suffering. And the time to learn about suffering is before that season comes, not in the midst of it. But there will be a time, like I said, where suffering will be a part of you, it will extend to your circle of friends, or maybe your neighborhood, or your city, or your nation, and you may be called upon to speak into that pain. And what do you say? And how do you talk? How do you lament? How does one do it? Lament is important because pain creates strong emotions, and we need to don't know what to do with them. Many people deal with strong emotions of pain by either denying them and acting like everything is okay, but deep down there's dark questions and there's hardship that a person's dealing with, so we just deny them. Or secondly, we, resolve, we try to resolve the pain too quickly, and therefore we miss the lesson that's embedded in the pain that God had for us in the first place, and we don't learn how to cope with that pain, and so that we just, that's when we develop unhealthy habits and so on and so forth. But pain... Unfortunately, often doesn't go away quickly. We need to learn to live in lament. Lament is not just a path to worship. It is worship. It's not a means to the end. It is the end. It's what God intends for his people while they wait for him to make all things new and right again. Lamenting provides an opportunity for for evangelism, because the world begins to hear and see God-centered language that they just don't have. We do not mourn as those without hope, First Thessalonians, Thessalonians 4, verse 13 says. What does that mean? We, don't, we mourn differently. We cry differently than the rest of the world. That's lament. Our world will struggle when bad things happen, and the conclusions they will draw and the language they will use will be shallow and hollow, but ours is not to be. We have the truth. We have lament. 
An apt quote by a man named Eugene Peterson, as quoted in the book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, says, One reason why people are uncomfortable with tears and suffering is that it is a blasphemous assault on the precariously maintained American spirituality of the pursuit of happiness. They want to avoid things that are not right with the world. As it, as it is without Jesus, without love, without faith, it's a lot easier to keep the American faith if they don't have to look into the face of suffering. So learning the language of lament is not only necessary to restore Christian dignity to suffering and repentance and death, it's necessary to provide a Christian witness to a world that has no language for it. And there is therefore oblivious to the glories and the, and the, and the wilderness and the cross. Well, all lamenting probably involves crying, but not all crying is lamenting. To cry is to human. To lament is Christian. To cry is to human, is human. To lament is Christian. So let's get into Psalm 77. I've titled this sermon, The Anatomy of Lament. And Psalm 77 is chosen because it's, it actually gives us a really nice prototype for a biblical lament, biblical lamentation. Not all of it, it actually comes, brings itself to a nice little conclusion. Not all lament in the Bible does that because as we know, not all pain resolves itself quickly or easily, and neither does lament. So Psalm 77 is ascribed to Asaph. Ascribed to Asaph, it says, according to Jonathan. These two men were part of the priestly service, and they were tasked with leading the congregation to worship. Let's just read. Ted Duthin, not Jonathan, excuse me. I cry aloud to God. And then it repeats itself aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without weariness. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Verse 10. It's the pivot point. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will ponder your work, wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your re arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O oh God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lit, lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints are, were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Both of Asaph and Jeduthun sang at the dedication of the temple, Psalm 50. Psalm 73 and Psalm 83 are attributed to Asaph as well. We don't know what the background was as to why this psalm was, was written. There are no specific hints as to what circumstances were playing into the writing of the song. You know, it's like, as I've been preaching through the psalms, there are some that are real nice and tidy and neat. And it's easy to find the context for them. We, we just don't have that with this one. If we look at psalms like Psalm 44, it's very clear. But it's not in this one. There's an enemy that's attacking that doesn't seem to be the case in Psalm 77. If you look at verse 9, and the question is about God being angry with his people, he, as he shut up his compassion, that might give us some indication that maybe it has something to do with the nation of Israel, maybe in exile. It was, things were looking good, maybe judgment was about to happen. We don't know. But as we analyze this psalm, there are four stages, four things 
that happens. And this is the anatomy of a song, and so this or anatomy of a lament in this lament song. Ready? The psalmist turns, or the lamenter turns, complains, asks, then trusts. Say that again. Turns, complains, asks, trusts. Turning, complaining, asking, trusting. This is what a lament looks like in the Bible. Turning, complaining, asking, trusting. So let's go first to turn. Verses 1, 2, and 3. I cry aloud to God. I cry aloud to God. And he says it again. Aloud to God. And he will hear me. Psalm 77 begins with, I cry aloud to who? Say it with me. One, two, three. God. And then he repeats himself. He says it again. Aloud to God. The psalm starts this way in order to frame the tone of this text. He is in pain, and he is not going to be silent about his pain. However, he's not just talking, complaining, or crying. He is crying out in prayer. What we have here is a painful prayer that the psalmist is offering out loud to whom? To God. The most important distinguishing point of Christian lament from the cries of hopelessness of the world is that lament is done at and to whom? Wake up. At and to whom? God. 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 Faith, having faith, is a prerequisite for lamenting. Because the very essence of lamenting is directed at someone. If you don't think that someone exists and is listening to you, then you're not going to waste your time talking to them. That's why I always, it's always interesting to me when, when atheists work really hard and they talk how angry they are. They act really angry towards a God they don't believe exists. And I'm like, then why are you so angry? Who are you angry at? The very action of lamentation, of lament, means it requires as a prerequisite of faith that there is a God. And then second, I will cry because what? Look at that first. Pull it up for us here. I will cry, verse 1, and he will hear me. I have a person to cry to. I have a God to cry to. And he is listening to what I have to say. In our fallen condition, things are not as they should be. Suffering is a part of our life. So we will seek comfort wherever it may be found. We will chase after God's with a little g in order to be relieved of our pain. Any port in a storm. The arms of the forbidden lover. The cheap satisfaction of sowing seeds of complaint, discontent, or gossip. The, the numbing buzz of substances. The distractions of entertainment. Or work. Biblical lament is rare and tough because it requires the discipline and the aid of the Spirit to turn away from other sources of comfort and turn to the only source of comfort that will actually give comfort. That is God. So turning is our first, the first thing the psalmist does. The first thing this lamenter does is turn away from who knows what the psalmist was looking for? Who knows what Asaph or whoever the author of the psalm was, was taking comfort in before he finally said, I've had my fill. It's doing no good. I must turn my attention to God. Turn. Then look at, look at the text, verse 2. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. My hand is stretched out, ostensibly toward the Lord. He's inviting God's touch. My hand is stretched out. Touch my hand, Lord, and take my hand. Give me comfort. He's waiting for God's comfort. He has turned and he's waiting now. My soul refuses to be comforted, ostensibly by anything other than you, or your touch, or your words. But then look what it says in verse 3. When I remember God, I moan. I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. The psalmist is exasperated. He is groaning at the thought because he's reaching his hand out. This is, the, this is what lamentation is. He's reaching his hand out. He's, he's made the choice to turn away from those things that might give cheap substitute comfort. And he's reaching his hand out and he just doesn't feel the touch of God. He doesn't feel comfortable. 
So he gets a little exasperated. He's, here we go again. Okay. And he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting. Have you been there before? And the very thought of putting your hand out again makes you do what? Moan. Grump. My soul refuses to be comforted. And it's tempting when you don't feel the comforting touch of the Lord. Because over here, what you turn from whispering is the evil one saying, I'll touch your hand. I'll comfort you. Turn back. And he's groaning, he's saying, no, and it's this tension that he's being held between, between, I'm not turning back, I'm going to hold my hand, but you're not, I do not feel the comfort of the Lord yet. I'm going to moan. He stays fixed forward, and he tells God, he's saying, now if I'm going to stay fixed forward with my hand facing forward to you to comfort me, and you're not going to comfort me, then guess what, God, you're going to hear about it. You're going to deal with my problems. You're going to deal with my hurts. So he starts complaining, which is the second point. Verse 4. You hold my eyelids open. Now this isn't like the men on top of the mountain with Moses holding his arms over his head so that he maintains strength. He's saying, you won't let me sleep. I'm an insomniac. I can't even rest. I'm so troubled that my eyes won't close and rest, and my mouth won't even open to speak. Won't even give me the right words to say that I might find some sort of relief. I can't even tell you how bad I feel. That's how bad I feel, God. I consider the days of old. He's remembering back to when things were different, when things were better. Right? Why can't things be like they were back there, God, before this bad thing happened, before this season of suffering? Why can't we just go back there? Were there not enough graves in Egypt? You had to bring me out here from the wilderness to die? Touch my hand. Give me comfort. I and let me... Remember, I, I'm remi he's remembering when he's saying praises to God in the night and things were good. And then meditating and he's searching his spirit over and he's searching himself over and he's saying, what might have caused this? What might have caused this? What is going on? Why am I suffering like I'm suffering, God? Why are you doing this to me? And that drives us into our third point where he starts to put, he turns from complaining to questioning God. Putting the questions to him now. That's the third part of a lament. So we've got turn away and toward God. We've got complaining to God, making my complaint go to him. The third part of biblical lamentation is questioning. Questioning. And he asks six rhetorical questions in a row of God. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Does the psalmist actually think these things? Does he, does he actually think these things? He had the face to turn away from sinful comfort-giving things to God and stay fixed on him as a source of comfort to this point. Does he think that God, the fountain of graciousness and compassion, has forgotten grace and compassion? Based on this and the rest of the psalm, my answer to that question would be no. I, I don't think he actually thinks that God has forgotten to be gracious. But it sure does feel like it. It sure does feel like it. I don't think the psalmist thinks that God is without grace and compassion. But he doesn't, inside of him, it doesn't feel like God is full of grace and compassion. This is the core of lament. God is good and sovereign and powerful to save. But in this moment, 
it sure does not feel like it. When your mom dies, when your best friend dies, when your kid dies, when you hear the words, you've got cancer, when your son rebels, when your husband cheats, when you get fired from your job, when COVID kills, when you're wrongfully sued, when you're on your third miscarriage in a row, why, God? Why, God? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There was a sentiment in cultural evangelicals over the 20th century to sweep hard things under the rug. And if we don't talk about it, it doesn't really exist. And let me tell you something. The Bible knows nothing of that. Lament is not the opposite of praise. Lament is not the opposite of faith. It is praise. It is faith. Although it asks difficult questions and although it wrestles deeply, lament is worship. It is the transition from pain of broken world to promise of faithful God. It's the space between those two things. It's the place of wilderness through which God leads us so we can wrestle with the brokenness in us and the brokenness around us. Lament longs for God's mercy. Lament is the position between brokenness and the coming of God's mercy. It's the tension between I live in a world that's broken and I'm waiting for God to make things new. I live in a world that's filled with sin. I'm filled with sin. I want Jesus to make everything right. And I know this works out well in the end, but I'm just not there yet. We're just not there yet. And some of you are in that land this morning. And you just don't know what to call it. And let me help you. You live in the land of lament. You live in the land of lament. And hear me about the land of lament. Good news. You can live and be fruitful and even find happiness while dwelling in the land of lament. You can struggle and suffer and be in a situation that life didn't turn out the way you wanted it to be. And you can still glorify God and honor him. You can live in lament as you wait for coming resolution. To lament well is not to be faithless. To lament well is to act in faithfulness. It's to not turn away. Even when you don't feel him touching with comfort your hand. Pain and difficulty and suffering are a part of what it means to be human. To struggle, to question, to wrestle with what's going on. All while trust, trusting God that he is working things out for the good of those who love him. That is Christian. That is lament. If you understand the scope of what's happening in the redemptive plan of God, your heart will long to say, and say, God, how long? How long do I have to suffer? How long do we have to keep going on like this? Every lament is a prayer of hurting, confused, pain-filled, and yet still believing heart. And notice something as we're about to tackle the end of this lament song. There is no verse 21. Just stops. It doesn't. It doesn't say. And then the sun came out, and Asaph fell asleep, and he found words because everything was all better, and the pain evaporated because he used the biblical format and formula of lament. It's not. It's not there. To some degree, the land of lament is where Christians dwell for the entire time they're on earth. We are fighting and struggling always because we have tasted and seen what is ahead and we won't be satisfied fully until we can get there. Okay? So fourth point as we finish this song. So at this point it's been basically negative. Right? It's been the negative part of lament. And we, now on verse 10, the whole thing pivots. When we get to the final and fourth point of biblical lament is trusting. So turning, complaining, Questioning and then trusting. Verse 10, so good. Then he said, after it's almost like that moment when your kid's throwing a big old fat temper tantrum, 
and they just finally like get it all out there, and then the parent looks at it and says, "Is that it? Are you done?" And the kid's like, "Yes, I'm done." You know, it's kind of verse ten. He, he got it all out there, and then verse ten, he said, "Then I said, I will appeal to this." To the years of the right hand of the Most High. The right hand denotes action. In Hebrew context. Okay? I will appeal to the action. The years of action by my God, he says. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your works of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeem your people. The children of Jacob and Joseph say long. The psalm, um, like I said, pivots on verse 10. And it, that repetition of aloud, aloud, twice in verse 1, we see another, another repetition, which is important in verse 11. It's the word remember. Remember. Look at verse 11. And I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your works of old. Psalm 77 illustrates both the journey and the destination of lament. The psalm illustrates it well, but not every lament ends this way. Not, not every lament will end with this kind of coming back. It's, it's what we want. It's the kind of prototype for if, we, if the lament can kind of work out the way it's supposed to. That's Psalm 77. It's going to be different when we get to the book of Lamentations. Okay? Because they did a whole lot of remembering then a whole lot of being mad about what happened, and then they had like hundreds of more years in exile, so it didn't quite work out immediately. Asaph makes a very significant shift with the word then in verse 10, and then he appeals to the history of God's powerful deliverance. Asaph is looking back and reflecting on the works of God in Israel's past. His lament has brought him to the place where he is now, remembering the numerous ways in which God has indeed proven himself to be trustworthy. And then the focus shifts from the historical works of God to the very character of God. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What is our God like? These are rhetorical questions. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might amongst the people. So he's thinking now about... This God he's turned to, he's allowing what God has done for him and for his people in the past to now start to inform the feelings that are welling up in his chest and get those back under control. It's you know how emotions are, they just go out and they get they they're out there and they're really just they're wild. And so what and oftentimes they don't they don't care about fact. They don't care about history. They're just there. Ugh. That's our emotions, that's our anger, that's our pain. So it starts to be shaped a little bit by the one in whom he's talking to. He's checking his emotions against what God has done for him and his people in the past. And then finally, and most importantly, as you can feel his emotions being tempered by the character of God, this prayerful lament finds its hope-filled resolution in the ultimate moment that defined the people of Israel and their relationship with God, the Exodus. Look at verse 16. You'll see it. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, they trembled. The clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. And lightnings light up the world, and the earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the what? Sea. The waters. Which sea? The Red Sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. God led us, but his footprints were unseen. And then this is where he really gives himself away. You led your people like a flock by the hand of who? Moses and Aaron. So it, it's almost as if. He's descent, he's tumbling down, he's tumbling down this hole of lament and saying, things can't get any worse. It's really bad, it's really bad, it's really bad, it's really bad, and finally he hits a bottom. There's a floor to his suffering. As a, as a child of Israel to Asaph, it can only get just so bad. Because why? Because there's an anchor point 
that all the people of Israel know about. It was a, it was a single moment in history by which they hung the, all their beliefs on. God made himself abundantly powerful and obvious. It was well-documented generation after generation after generation after generation. And they told them, teach your kids about what happened at the Red Sea generation after generation after generation after generation. Why? So that as they were tumbling down the whole of lament, when things got really, really, really bad, they didn't just keep tumbling. They could only just go so far. Because etched in their minds was the fact that this God cared enough about them, loved them, was compassionate and gracious. Are you compassionate and gracious? He answers his own question with the exodus, with this floor. Oh yeah, he is compassionate and gracious. He has to be because of the exodus. He didn't love us, sir. He wouldn't have done that. He wasn't serious about saving his people. Why would he have wasted his time? The Exodus was the anchor for Asaph's lament. There was no greater moment in history for the Israelites than the Exodus. For the Christian, our Exodus event, the place where we find and found deliverance, is on the hill of Golgotha on the cross. It is where our question should be taken. It is the foundation of our hope and confidence. And no matter how dark, bleak, or difficult life may be, how painful our laments come, God has already proven himself to be for us and not against us. Christ died that we might have an anchor to cling to as we swirl about in the storms of our sin-filled suffering. Romans 8, verse 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son. But gave him up for us all. How will we not also with him graciously give us all things? Therefore we can lament the pain, the brokenness, and the sufferings of this life. While anchoring our hearts in the bedrock truth of the grace of God. We can lament and join in in lamentations of others as they wrestle with difficult emotions and challenging questions. Sidebar, don't be a bad friend. Don't be a, don't be a bad friend. Job's friends were great until they did what? Open their mouths. When you have someone you love is suffering, don't tell them to get over it. Don't do that to them. Do you, would, you want, would you want that done to you? To sweep these emotions under the rug? Your pain is too uncomfortable for me. Don't do that. Gosh, I, I, my prayer as I, as I came up with this sermon, you know, one of my prayers for you was that we would just be better friends to each other. We would just be better brothers and sisters to each other because we learn the language of the land. We learn what suffering together looks like. We can cry out to God in our human pain. And we can do so with a hope that one day God will make everything right. There's a bottom. There's a floor. God, do you, do you are you listening to me? Do you even love me anymore? The cross says yes. God, do you do you is there my sin is so awful. It's it's so egregious. What I did was so bad. God, why did you let me go that far? Why I'm I'm coming back to you. Will you take me back? Will you take me back? Has my penalty been paid? The cross says yes. The cross answers yes. There is a bottom to our suffering. There is a place, there's a square one we can go back to in our suffering. No matter how dark, how deep, how bad things get and look, we can start from there and begin building forward. We can cry out to God in our pain. And we can do so with the hope that one day God will make everything right. In our lament, we are still worshiping. In our lament, we are still trusting. We are still trusting. And as a closing prayer today, my, this whole 
apart. My soul has just spun. Just spun. My emotions have been everywhere. This country I know and I love, I can't even recognize her at times. Do I wear a mask? Do I not wear a mask? Do I, do I stay away from people I love, or do I join them in fellowship? Do I go to church? Do I stay home? Do we do digital services? Do we not? <sighs> Let me tell you, I needed lament in my life bad. We planned this a long time ago, and the Lord knew just how badly, I don't know about you, but he knew just how badly I was going to That I was going to need a vocabulary to straighten my orientation back out, to find my anchor, and then start plugging forward again. So I wrote a lament this week. And as our closing prayer today, I'm going to pray that. Okay? It's, it's, it's full of strong emotion, so I hope it doesn't overwhelm you. It might. It's probably going to overwhelm you. Father, to you I turn with concerns because I know that you will listen. You are always ready to hear me. My soul churns with trouble. During the day, I lack energy to carry out my given tasks. It is difficult to be productive. During the night, sleep evades my eyes. It is impossible to rest. But I must seek you out. Where else do I go? God, a virus tears our land. People we know are afflicted. Brother Jim Wyrock at Agape Church, even this morning I learned his testing positive for COVID. Lord, he has health complications, and if we get here, so we pray for him right now. We lift him up before you and ask him to heal his body. This is not theory. It's on my front door. We don't want to be sick. We don't want to make others sick, but we are powerless against an enemy we can't see. And evil men and women use our fear and our emotions against one another for their own gain. Christian brother turns against Christian brother, and we refuse to live in peace. Ethnic divides, as old as the Tower of Babel, make the earth shake under our feet. Rioters, lawless men, kill, steal, and destroy. Hedonistic, atheistic, Marxist worldviews, poison. The blood-bought rivers of freedom that have been flown in this nation since it was founded. And the founding documents declared, as your scriptures declare, that all men are created equal in your image. Babies are murdered by the millions, by the millions, God. Murdered by their mothers and fathers, murdered by abortionist doctors, murdered by a system that profits from their death. And by the flick of a pen, a few men could do away with this genocide, but they will not do it. They won't do it. Like the common language of Babel, our technology intended to connect us and bring ease in our lives to help us achieve great things only serves as a megaphone for our suffering and our sin. I worry for my children, God. What kind of world are they going to inherit? I worry for my church. Will the name of Christ be tolerated in public much longer? Are you listening, God? Have you turned a deaf ear to the cries of your people for peace? Will you save us from ourselves, Lord? How long will you let unrighteousness reign? It's been 2,000 years since you said you would come back for us. Haven't we suffered enough? Is your cup of wrath not full? Lord, I must remember your works. I must remember your works among the faithful and find refuge. Your child, David, who stood before a giant, to the world helpless, but in reality armed to the teeth, 
with five smooth stones and your spirit swelling in his chest. Your servant Esther in exile, standing before a Persian king, a helpless woman by all counts, but with you by her side, and forming her cunning, she saved the people. Your, your listening, stammering disciples in the dark upper room, brooding over what to do after you had been hung on a cross, resurrected and ascended into heaven. As tongues of fire rode down like chariots and rested on them, straightening their tongues, arresting their voices, shoring up their weak knees and sending them forth to preach the good news. I remember them, Lord. Lord, I remember your saints in 1930s Germany, Corrie ten Boom, and a faithful few who wouldn't go along with the cultural stream of murder and genocide of the Nazi party. Who's, these saints who now sit around your throne for endless days, singing your praise, delivered from their murderers, delivered from sin. And most of all, Lord, I remember you, whose words were twisted against you. You endured the murderous culture of God-haters and spoke truth at the cost of your life. You who, although knew no sin, became sin for our sake. You went silently unto death for my sake. You suffered and died alone, but you have not left me alone. You have not left us alone. You have sent the same spirit that filled the breast of David, of Esther, of Peter, and Corrington Boom unto us to help us. My God, who has done so much to show who he is for us, surely is not now against us. Lord Jesus, hold us up under it. In the name of Jesus, the cross, 